In the beginning was the word Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without Jesus, the word, nothing was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how John opens up his gospel, and it reveals that Jesus is the cornerstone, the word, the logos, the premise upon whom all truth itself is built and through whom all truth is understood. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. If your worldview, your interpretation of how truth came to be and how we're able to know that truth is missing something conspicuous, it's missing a step one, today you have found him. He is Jesus, he is the cornerstone of all truth itself. If you have questions in your heart, where did, where did life come from? What is the purpose of life? Like you find yourself having been born into a universe that seems to have been created with benevolent intent. Why? The answer is Jesus. Like you know that morality itself is something that is transcendent and authoritative. It was not man-made and we are culpable unto it. We will answer to God for it one day. Why? Who? Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon whom truth itself is built. But people reject the cornerstone. They reject Jesus. And what happens when you remove the cornerstone from truth? It crumbles. Are you crumbling? Are you struggling to answer basic questions? Your whole worldview is in flux. Your whole ontology is fractured at the very foundation itself. What you need is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the one through whom all things were made. He's what's missing from your worldview. I've led several militant atheists to Christ, and oftentimes what they're not, what they don't, what they don't struggle with is the notion of God or his existence. What they struggle with is this, is this juncture. It's not just an act, act of intellectual assent whereby you come to believe that Jesus is the author of all truth and then suddenly that missing puzzle piece just clicks into place and you have answers to questions. Rather, what they struggle with is, okay, now I've got to answer to him. Like, what that indicates clearly is he's Lord. And because he's Lord, I'm not. That that is the hurdle. Are you there, my friend? Are you right there? We're like, you know, you know, in your heart of hearts. Come on, be honest with yourself. Like, you know, you know that you have to account for like where dirt came from. Like, you, you have to come up with an explanation for where life itself came from. Morality is not something arbitrary. Like, you know all these things and you've got to come to terms with the fact that Life doesn't generate itself. Morality, morality doesn't generate itself. Like truth doesn't just generate itself. I mean, it, it came from without. It came from an outside source. It came from a transcendent authority, and that's Jesus. There's no other worldview that accounts for things this way. And, and that one hurdle to come over for you is confessing that Jesus is Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would pull you over, that by faith you would come to believe that Jesus is Lord, that you would, as a result, repent from sin 
be set free by the Son, free indeed. See, it's beautiful here on the other side. I can't take credit for having gone over that hurdle. The Holy Spirit of God is what brought me, brought me across, enabled me to believe, and called me by name from darkness to light. But here on the other side, I gotta tell you, the water is fine. Because I, I know how we're able to know things. Let's just begin with that premise. You know, I mean, how is it possible that we as beings are able to make intelligible statements? You're like, back up, like where did the computer processor come from the, by which we're even having the conversation? Like, as a Christian, I have an answer to that question. I know where dirt came from. I know where life came from. I know where morality came from, and I know where it's heading. I know what life means, and I know, I know where it's all going. I know its purpose, because God has revealed himself plainly. He didn't hide himself. He revealed himself in his word. All right, come on in, man. The water is fine. I know these questions haunt you. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one who's missing. Mark chapter 12, verse one through 34 is what we're gonna study today. It's page, eight, page 848 in the Bible's in the seats with you. It opens up with a parable from Jesus and then there are these three subsequent interactions. It is Wednesday of the Passion Week, Wednesday leading up to the crucifixion when this parable is taught and these interactions take place. Some of the same voices that shouted Hosanna, much to the chagrin of the leadership of Israel, would later shout crucify in a matter of days. Jesus has just driven the money changers out of the temple. Isn't that fascinating? Consider the fruits of Jesus's anger. In his anger, he healed a man with a shriveled hand. In his anger, he fashioned a whip out of cords. Like if I get angry and I try to make arts and crafts, it's not going to go well. But Jesus in his anger is perfectly in control and purposeful. It's fascinating to me to see Jesus drive people away from himself and then see everybody drawn to Jesus. He was despised by the leadership in part because he dispelled, he dispelled their, their corrupt businesses throughout the temple and because of the huge ascendancy of his popularity. He's the cornerstone whom the builders rejected. And the rejected cornerstone is about to speak to the builders. Look at Mark chapter 12. See if he speaks to you. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the vineyard owner sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Speaking from salvation first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Quoting Psalm 118. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people 
For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time it's recorded that the Pharisees and Sadducees actually get it that they are the bad guys in Jesus' parables and have been for three years. Hey! They're like thinking back about all the parables. Like, yes, it's been about you the whole time. Hey! So Jesus, in the Matthew 21 rendition of the same parable, actually invites the Pharisees to participate, and they play along quite beautifully. What do you think that the owner of the vineyard would do once they've killed his son? And the Pharisees just step in it. Oh, they rant and they rave, and Jesus is like, exactly. Jesus is conveying God to the owner of a vineyard. That vineyard and this instance really represents Israel. And in verses two through five, those servants of God who go to address the tenant farmers, those are the prophets of old, whom they killed between porch and altar. Think on the prophets of old. Think of Amos, the country boy, who goes and stands right there in Times Square and proclaims God's coming wrath. Who is this crazy hick? <laughs> Amos, proclaiming God, and he's rejected. Jeremiah, who went to his grave thinking he had failed. The king of Judah rejected and destroyed the prophecies that he gave him. His family disowned him. His friends left him behind. He gave all of his wealth away twice and went to his grave thinking he was a failure. He didn't know that his amanuensis's spare copies of his prophecies would go into the best-selling book of all time. He was writing to us, not his contemporaries. These are the abused and martyred prophets of old of whom Jesus spoke in his parable in verses two through five. But verse six, this is where it becomes a meta parable. Jesus in his parables tells of what will happen and what does happen. But at this point in verse six, it's like this meta parable because he tells about what is happening in that moment. He talks about the vineyard owner sending his son, okay? He is the son, he has been sent. What's remarkable to me is that he tells them in his parable that they're going to kill the son. And he tells this to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees do exactly what Jesus says they're going to do. It doesn't dawn on them, hey, wait a minute, are we fulfilling prophecy right now? Yeah, we're fulfilling prophecy. We probably shouldn't do this. So even in killing Jesus, they do exactly what he says will happen. So Jesus quotes in verses 10 and 11... Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you want to hear that beautiful line in context? Listen to this. Listen to Psalm 118, 17 through 29. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day 
day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This ancient psalm of praise for God, Jesus takes it and personifies it. Many of the psalms make more sense to us than they did the original recipients because there is prophecy riddled throughout those songs of praise. It's why the book of Hebrews is what it is. Like a huge percentage of the content of the book of Hebrews is just quoting the psalms. The author of Hebrews, a Hebrew himself writing to Hebrews, takes from the Psalms and shows them this was about Jesus, this was about Jesus, this was about Jesus, to make the textual case that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. So many Psalms point forward in prophetic history to Jesus. Psalm 34, 17 through 22, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous one may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Not one of his bones will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked and the foes of the righteous will be condemned, but the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. It sounds like a beautiful word of comfort to somebody who's hurting, but then John quotes that Psalm while Jesus is on the cross. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. That's Jesus, the righteous one. That's Jesus may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Not one of his bones will be broken as they went man by man around the crosses. They didn't break Jesus's legs because he was already dead. Psalm 34 becomes beautifully fulfilled in Jesus. And here in Psalm 118, Jesus shows how he is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, the cornerstone originally rejected by the builders. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Society has rejected Jesus, the cornerstone. Is this anything new? Not at all. This has been done across the millennia, time and time again. People have rejected Jesus. Is this the, is this the first culture at large to write off the cornerstone? Not at all. This is not progressive. This is quite regressive, actually. Looking back across cyclical societies millennia long, we can see where people reject the cornerstone and their definition of truth crumbles. Watch, observe. When you remove the cornerstone, your sense of truth crumbles. You begin condoning everything. And then as you careen a breakneck pace down the slippery slope, there's nothing to slow you because your sense of truth is gone. Your true north has been lost. So this is, this is nothing new. This, this imagery of the cornerstone comes from the original building practices. All right, it wasn't until the pyramids that we saw like custom cut stones. The more common practice of construction involved going to the quarry, gathering what stones you had, and then working with what you had. Okay, I'll use those, those would be good for this. I need to build something curvilinear, so let's use these smaller stones. And all the while, the architect on site, in the moment, is thinking about saving the very best stones for the corner because the stones at the corner, at the apex of two walls, bears half the weight of that wall and a quarter of the weight of the structure's roof. So whatever goes there has to be very sturdy. As you walk around downtown Seattle, you'll notice this. Look at the corners of some of the older buildings. The, 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 there's this one stone that is bigger than all the others that often has a plaque on it. That's the cornerstone. 
If you remove that stone, the structural integrity of the whole building is radically compromised. Jesus is the cornerstone. And he says that the builders rejected him, but it turns out he is the cornerstone. He's the one upon whom it all rests. Jesus is accustomed to being rejected. Have you rejected Jesus as the cornerstone? Listen, there is one thing that is inevitable, that is, that is non-negotiable, that is irrevocable. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. All right, my friend, I implore you, listen to the spirits drawing upon your heart. May you come to confess that he's the cornerstone on this side of judgment, not the other side. Let's look upon your face when you see that Jesus is the cornerstone, not be one of shock, but one of gratitude. This is your moment. Jesus is the cornerstone. Confess it, confess it, confess it as the spirit draws upon your heart. And there, rest and abide in a worldview that is soundly built upon the truth of God as he has revealed himself from the very beginning. Jesus, the cornerstone, the one upon whom it all rests, regardless of what culture says. So there's the parable. Look at the three interactions. First come the Pharisees and the, uh, the Herodians. Look at verse 13. Let's talk about it. And they sent to him one of the, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Let's pause right there. That is quite an odd couple, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Right? The, the Pharisees were sons of Jacob. The Herodians were sons of Esau. All right? Herod was merely the delegate. He ran the garrison on behalf of the Roman Empire to make sure that Israel knew what was up. They knew that Rome was really in charge. And so there is this huge clash between the rulers of Israel and the rulers of Rome, the Roman Empire, by extension, Herod. Okay, Antiochus Epiphanes IV saw this uprising and capitalized on it, squashing Jewish worship giving rise to the Hasmonean dynasty from whom came the offices of Pharisee and Sadducee. This schism within the leadership of Israel is why Herod was put in place. Rome pretended like they were being conciliatory. Really, they were capitalizing on the fractured leadership. And so the Pharisees were there because the, they, they knew, they knew that they were God's sovereign nation state, their own theocracy. And there was no other people group in the ancient world that defied Roman conquest quite like the Jews. And the Herodians were there in support of Herod. So the Pharisees hated the Herodians. They hated the Herodians. The Pharisees hated the Herodians, but they hated Jesus more. So they've enlisted the help of the guys that they sort of hate to go after the one that they really hate. That's the context in verse 13. And they came to him and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. That's ironic but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, do you see that, Christian? Are you having trouble engaging people with the gospel? You're having trouble getting to the point where you can share the gospel in a way that's meaningful? Are you letting someone who is acting out of hypocrisy set the terms for the discussion? Okay, this revolutionized the way that I do apologetics. I actually published a book on apologetics and then rescinded it upon further study of Jesus' method here. He does not merely provide evidence for evidence for evidence for evidence for question upon question upon question upon question because the fountain of questions is limitless. 
Rather, he moves straight to the source. Rather than sending foot soldiers to engage in hand-to-hand combat, he nukes the headquarters. Seeing their hypocrisy. Like, I'm not gonna abide by the rules that you set, Pharisees and Herodians. This is all being done under a false premise anyway. All right, the Pharisees and the Herodians say, here's door number one, here's door number two. Choose wisely, Jesus. And Jesus says, door number three it is, thanks. <laughs> you don't have to play by their rules. You understand? They're lying. It's all a lie. It's all a trap. You don't have to play by the rules that they set. Jesus certainly doesn't. Jesus, seeing their hypocrisy, said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. Their plan was this. If Jesus said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, these Pharisees, with their odd-coupled Herodians, would have said, look at that. He means to lead a coup against Caesar. This is an insurrection. He means to defy in a political movement, which, by the way, they would love nothing more than that. But they knew that that could bring about capital punishment. The Romans didn't quite invent crucifixion, but in the most grotesque use of the term imaginable, they perfected it. And they wanted this visited upon Jesus for this high crime. And so this was a, this was a trap to get Jesus to say that you shouldn't pay Caesar what is Caesar's, that you shouldn't pay taxes, that it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, because then they could paint him as a rabble-rouser trying to stir up political dissension against the Roman Empire. But Jesus is not playing their game. Then his statement, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, brings pretty direct application to you and I, because we pay taxes likewise. Now, we're in a much better position than the people in the Roman Empire, because we live in a republic and we have a bit of say in the matter here. But that was much more hard for the people oppressed by pagan Rome to abide by until the third century. Just know this, my friend. Caesar answers to God for how he uses our tax dollars. So Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Quite an odd pairing there. Look at how snake-like they are in their language in verse 14. I mean, like they, they don't believe in Jesus to begin with. All right, they, the teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Obviously not. He's not swayed by the appearance that you're putting up as you come to him with this false premise. So swing and a miss, Pharisees and Herodians. Who's next? The Sadducees. Look at verse 18. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and he leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's Deuteronomy 25. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. All right, look at verse 18, and then look at verse 23. Okay, verse 18, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection... Okay, look at verse 23. The Sadducees ask, in the resurrection. Okay, do you see? See the hostile intent behind the question to begin with? You don't have to step into a trap. I see Christians do this all the time online. Hey, here's a bear trap. Step in it. Okay. 
You don't have to accept their terms. You don't have to go through door number one or door number two. They're both lies. Look at Jesus's method. He looked at the underlying presuppositions. Hang on a second, hang on a second. You have several questions to answer first. You may not encounter Pharisees or Sadducees, but you're likely to encounter people who do the same thing today. Okay, here's an answer to this dumb riddle that comes up all the time. You take this answer and you use it. Don't even give me credit for it. Is God so powerful he can make a rock so big that he can't move it? Yes. And then he can move it. Because that's what omnipotent means. See, these riddles... Riddle me this, Christian. Like they're always, they always involve a straw man of God, not God as he's revealed himself, because this is unassailable. So they have to invent a fake God and posit that and ask you a riddle about that, not the one true God. You don't have to accept the dishonest terms of the trap, Christian. Point to the abyss beneath their feet, okay? They have to account for where dirt came from before they can ask questions about a holy God who has revealed truth itself. Do you understand? They have several conspicuous blanks in their own ontologies before they can assail the perfect word of truth. They are not actually neutral because we are all born with a sin nature. They're not neutral, neither should you be. Because of total depravity, None of us is actually truly neutral. We can't view the world through an uncorrupted lens. We have a sinful nature. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Two authors to read on this presuppositional apologetics are Cornelius Van Til, V-A-N-T-I-L, and Greg Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. So Jesus' answer puts Deuteronomy 25 in its eternal perspective. Jesus said, said to them, it is, not the reason you, uh, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? That's convicting. The Sadducees were the best educated guys in town. They had Genesis through Malachi memorized. And Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Is it possible to have an encyclopedic knowledge of scripture but not understand it? Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And look at verse 26. Here's where he goes for the presuppositions, the false presuppositions upon which they made their accusation. He knows they profess disbelief in the resurrection, but just ask him a resurrected-based question. So that's what he's going for. He's not dealing in the fracas of their silly little straw men they build. He goes straight for the core of everything they believe. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, meaning these guys are with me now in heaven, Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all alive when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Swing and a miss, Sadducees. Who's next? And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Finally, a question that is asked without a false pretense. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. At last, somebody gets it. Do you realize this scribe's statement probably got him kicked out of the synagogue? All of his poker buddies, gone. To say that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself is more important than the whole sacrificial system? That was egregiously offensive to pharisaical ears, but he got it. You know that they had taken the 10 commandments and turned it into 613 rules, one for every Hebrew letter of the Decalogue. They took 10 commandments and turned it into 613, an acrostic, letter by letter. This guy saw through all of it. He understood, no, it's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what all the law and the prophets are summed up in, and Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Pharisees and Herodians tried to trap Jesus with a false pretense, swinging a miss. The Sadducees tried to entrap Jesus, asking a question that completely misses the point of leveret marriage the principle at work in the book of Ruth, the principle at work in Revelation 5, when Jesus, the lamb who was slain, takes the scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals, and he's worthy to redeem the fallen bride. He says, you don't understand what you're talking about. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then comes this scribe, and he gets it. As a kid growing up, my parents didn't give me a whole long list of rules to follow, right? Rather, it was understood that we would live our lives with biblical discernment. Okay, now, by all means, have, have rules if you have rules. I'm just telling you my experience, like, I didn't have a curfew, for example. I mean, if I came home egregiously late, yeah, I might be given a curfew for a while after that, right? But I, I didn't have any restrictions on my freedom until I abused those freedoms, and then would come disciplinary action. Rather, what was always held at the center of the way that my parents raised my siblings and I was the word of God and to exercise biblical discernment in all things. I've seen other parenting styles at work in my years as a youth pastor and my experience as well. Have you ever seen this before? Have you ever seen somebody who grew up under like this long list of rules, 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 rules? And then they turn 18, they get accepted to a college, they move into their dorm and as soon as their parents pull away, they go utterly ballistic. Have you seen this? Because the rules are gone. And they don't have any discernment by which to discern for themselves what is best. They don't have that guiding rubric by which to judge right from wrong. They just had rules, and those rules are nowhere to be found. There's no way to enforce those rules anymore, so I'm gonna go nuts. Rather, what, what was that play in my experience as a child, which I recognize, Every, everybody's experience is different, but mine's just as legitimate, so listen to it. I loved my father, I loved my mother. I didn't wanna hurt them, I wanted to do as they instructed me because of a relationship and because they, got, they gave me the word of God. Happy Mother's Day indeed. All right, this is what my mom gave me, it's what I give to you, the word of God. 
that was what set the standard for us. Are you here because, let me be brutally honest, are you here because that's just a rule that you follow? I mean, I'm glad that you're here, don't get me wrong, but do you go to church because you just go to church? That's a rule that you follow, it's a thing that you do? If so, I pray that you have the same kind of encounter with Jesus that this scribe just did. That you understand the heart behind the law and you love the lawgiver. You love the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And for that reason, you love your neighbor as yourself because all the law is summed up in this, that your faith would go from legalism to love. I hereby proclaim the church kids free. If you're a 43-year-old church kid, you are free, free indeed. Okay, it's not about the rules that you follow. I pray that you come back next weekend. It'll be because you love Jesus and you want to fellowship with your fellow believers and use your gifts to serve in the mission that he's given us. That's why you would come. The rules are no more. They were taken to the cross, satisfied in Jesus. He has fulfilled the law. And now, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The law serves a beautiful purpose. Not one letter of it has been abolished. It will remain forever. But Jesus fulfills the law. So I pray freedom for the church kids. I pray discernment as a tactic for the believer who's trying to engage the law, so that you would look to Jesus' method here and not accept the false premises upon which accusations are made, but look to the abyss beneath your accuser's feet and go there. Let's do this in proper order. You have several questions to answer before you can levy attacks against the unassailable truth of God. And then I pray that those who today have come to see that the conspicuous blank to be filled in your worldview is Jesus and Jesus alone. That the cornerstone would lock in place forevermore and you would understand the truth and abide in the peace that comes from belonging to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God who was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. Pray with me. God, I pray that you would set the rule-following church kids free, God. They would no longer come here because it's a rule that they follow, but they would come here because they love the lawgiver. They love the Savior. I pray, God, that you would teach us your method for engaging people who are hostile towards you. No longer dancing to the tune that they sing for us, no longer accepting the premises that are built upon hypocrisy and lies, but rather looking to the foundations upon which they stand and levying the truth of God and inviting them into it. And God, I lift up the people to whom you have spoken through your word, that they see their reflection Originally in the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, but now they feel like that scribe and it all comes together and they see the purpose for the law that is love. By the Spirit of God, they love you. God, I believe in you now. 
I didn't when I walked in, but something's different here. I see the cornerstone in place and I can't deny that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the life, and his name is Jesus. I may have rejected the cornerstone at first, but he is here, he always has been Lord, and I confess it. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in my eyes. I hereby confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, by the Spirit of the living God, say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us, some of us for the very first time as believers in God?